No. And I always tell guy anything that's shooting well, no. just leave it alone. You know how many rifles have been fucked up by tinkering with them? Uh, yeah, I know that, somebody. I this guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a pretty common thing, though, like you said. Uh, here you got this thing that shoots really, really good, and now you want to do what? Yeah. You know, the answer is leave it alone. Shoot it out. Well, Wear they always start out, off with another they, one. And they know what their answer is because they say it the same way. I have this right. They'll talk all about the rifle and how well it shoots. And mm-hmm. then at the end of it, they say... But I really like fluting. Should I do it? Yeah. And they already know the fucking answer. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. the same with like plus P and you're like, no, yeah. you're there. Yeah, it's fucking yeah. hammering the, the hundred feet per second up front. Yes, it's nice. Add it up front. But if you're already hammering, the difference between 2,900 and 3,000, the elk don't give a shit. No. Yeah, they, really they actually, I'd never seen anybody in physics class. There was no elk in physics class at <laughs> yeah. all. Yeah. So they really don't care. <laughs> Luke, I know you're listening right now. We need to, we need to revamp this thing. <laughs> I mean, a lot of effort was put in. You could tell there was a lot of effort yep. put in there. It's just not it's not doing it for me. Mike, what am I undisputed? <laughs> Probably a lot of things. The best garden gnome. Yeah, that's what I thought. In the podcast yeah. realm. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably yeah, you right, Mark. It, man. Probably Mark's right. Probably a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you ask. <laughs> I think there's probably a list someplace. There, oh, there's a list. Divisive, yeah. hate, hateful, kind. You know, like one person out there <laughs> loves the. It's the awkward part about the fact that you love awkward situations. Is I do like to throw a start the shit into, into a conversation and sit back and see what, what happens. Yeah. Today, I, it's you know why it's odd. I figured this out. Why this is a we're on a fucking Tuesday. Is that what's throwing you uh, off? It's like because you're in a weird fucking mood. Tuesday, I I got like a lot of I'm going on this hunt that I've already been on. I got a huge huge walk and I'm fat, and I know I'm gonna have to pack out an elk. You know, so hearing like, you uh, whine about that fucking hunt, does it, it, there's no there's no basis after you see this 320 bull and you decide to pass on it. Yeah. So complaining about walking back in after seeing a 320 bull, there's no, there's no merit to it. It's called white people problems. Well, there you go. It is. Yeah. We, we, we are, uh, we are not, I shouldn't say, I won't say that. I'll say we are outnumbered, but we're actually even on the younger younger versus older. No, you're outnumbered. I wouldn't call us younger. Well, I'd say mid, mid, what would we be? I'm 46. Well, I'm not going to guess, but I'm saying so. So there's two 40 to 60s and two 60 to 80s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Blade didn't like that. Well, no, it's just, you guys are way outnumbered. Would it? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, years absolutely. of experience wise, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt about yeah. years of experience. I just, I'll, I'll, I'm the layman in this, in this oh, group I'm, for sure. Oh, I don't think that's true. I'm on the metal stuff and build. You're, I have no engineering mind, and we're here with a guy that builds rifle, a guy that was a mechanic for a high end, you know, yeah. high end bus place. And this dude, we just figured out, went to MI fucking T. Yep. And he has like this, uh, this wealth of information just crawling around in his head about Sammy and metallurgy and atomic bombs affecting steel. And this is the kind of shit we're going to talk about. Cool. We got Mark, Mace Burrows, and we have Blaine. You know, they're the elderly gentlemen. You bet. But you better, the, the more experienced <laughs> gentleman. That's the best way to put it. I got, I got to say this because I prefaced this. I was asking about people to have on for barrels. <clears throat> people spit out all these names and I'm thinking, man, they, not, not to your detriment but to your defense there you have been in this game a long time people are spouting all these other barrel companies i just think ace needs to get a bigger foothold out there now because you guys are putting out quality products now we'd we'd love to have that of course and but at the same time we're not looking to change our process you know a lot of people do that they get very large they get a lot of people working for them and then they got to sacrifice stuff to get it out mm -hmm. and we're just not into that yeah i mean it's just the, the growth of any small business at yeah. some point you know it always starts off with one guy basically oh, yeah. or one lady and from there you have to start delegating hiring training and at some point there are some things that are lost some are acceptable some are not but yeah if you can't keep the quality it's a you know bat machine has a lot of the same philosophy Oh, yeah. We're adding new actions right now. We're talking about how many actions they can make per week, per month. How much can we consume from them? And you know, Bruce is generally of the mindset, Bruce and Daryl, that that they don't, they almost don't want to make more actions. They like everything the way it is. So we just have to work within those boundaries. But definitely, yeah. And Mark has been in this game so long that Bruce was his Padawan. His there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bruce, Tom, Bruce, Tom. That bad machine was at one time a machinist for you. Is that correct? Th that is correct. He okay. Worked, yeah, I would uh, feed him all the stuff that he would need for. He worked on the night shift, by the nice. way, or the swing shift at that point. There, they got off at like one in the morning or something. But so you yeah. have the official title of sensei. I guess yeah. so from from that there, you know, Bruce is a uh, really an energetic, want to do things right, find the best way to do it, learn how to increase the speed from the best way to do it mm. he's always been that way and you know me i've gosh i think i've known bruce for over 30 years now and uh it may even be a little bit longer than that but you know when i first met him he's bringing out stuff he was actually in uh high school in metal shop building a rifle he built a rifle in metal shop he built a 22 those were the days baby oh yeah now they that got rid great. of the fucking metal shops yeah, you not you not even make anything in high school mm. anymore. Let alone no. make a gun. I brought. Yeah. I would go deer hunting after football practice, and I'd still have my rifle in the back of in my in the truck. fucking truck, yeah. ready to rock. Even hang it up, like in the you know yeah. in yeah. the back window. Times have changed. You know, and of course, I grew up in Montana, where obviously firearms are are pretty much a way of kind of life over mm -hmm. there. But I actually in in our elementary school, which had probably a hundred and fifty kids in there. We had three or four of us. We actually had scabbards on our bicycles, and we would bring our guns to school, put them in the closet with the ammo, and at the end of the day, we'd take those out. There was a sawmill that was upstream. We'd go down there and shoot. 
if you got lucky, there'd be beer bottles in there because back then, you know, oh, shit. there was three bars and a grocery store in the town I lived in. You know, but so there was that, and we got there and shoot wood blocks out, you know, in the water, and then everything you could do. The other side was a rock cliff that went straight up, you know, so there was no background things or anything, but it was no big deal. They just knew what you were going to do. You just took your gun out of the scabbard, like yeah. we're talking the Wild West, and yeah. instead it was bicycle. Put it in the put it in the closet with coats. Those, those were the the high testosterone man days. Yeah. Oh man, <clears throat> I'd go back there in a minute. It was there was a lot of other things that went along with that, but you know yeah. it was not so good. But because you know when you work in a small sawmill town or where it basically everybody's either a lumberjack or they know how to throw you know two by sixes thirty yards into a stack off a green chain. Uh-huh. And there's who's the toughest all yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they also know how to drink. That was that was oh, that's baby. what came with the testosterone part, right? Getting asses kicked, yeah. drinking. That's how I got all my twenty-two shells for my rifle. Is on uh, Friday, uh, Saturday morning, and Sunday morning, going down the road. And at that time, beer bottles in Montana had a deposit, and so did obviously pop bottles and stuff. Picking up all of those there and taking those in and uh, trading that off. <laughs> Ammo. <laughs> that reminds me of the Sandlot. They were they were doing that in the Sandlot yes. movie, so they get another baseball after they hit it over to yeah. the to the dog over the fence. I rather mm-hmm. I like yeah. the ammo purchase over the baseball yeah, that's purchase. True. That's oh, true. it's awesome. You know. Well, if we go all the way back, I think it's the third podcast we actually did a podcast with Ace when this podcast was first getting going. We did it in your shop. You took yep. us through the tour. We have a video on Shoot to Hunt on the YouTube about your whole setup, and we went through your whole facility from start to finish, <clears throat> but. You came in here with this MIT thing. We didn't. We didn't really cover that in the last. So, can you at least start with before you got into barrels? What was that process? You got out of high school. You started doing what? What led you to MIT? And what then? What led you to the bar- building barrels? Well, actually, the the thing where we ended up getting in there and and end up with a master's in there was uh, was kind of an oddball, freaky thing because actually, if we go back, we actually took and I went through literally Spokane Community College in their machine shop course. At that point there, they had, a, they had a program where you could actually go in there and compete against other people. I actually ended up going national, and I won that. A company called Dual, which I don't even know if they exist today, were much into bandsaws. They made a lot of stuff like that. Uh, would, uh, uh, they ended up... I ended up after winning that do all pick me up and that's when I had my first abilities with an NC machine. Okay. You know, CNC machines are lovely because they do half the work for you. Back then you literally had a punch tape and you had to do everything that thing did. You know, you would have to have it. If you want to move it over and drill a hole, you have to tell it to go down where and how far to drill the hole. And you also have to tell it to come back up. Mm. <laughs> Otherwise mm-hmm. it just moves over. So, you know, they were, they were a lot more tougher to, to program. And, uh, or from, but by today's standards, they're a heck of a lot harder. When you said punch tape, can you elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> well, man, that's going back there. I understand that the, we're, we're talking vintage stuff here, and you guys are <laughs> quite vintage, so well, you I don't picture, get it. I I picture Blaine's over here right now. He's going, I get it. I already know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> we don't have patina. You know, and I could actually I mean, bring you one tape, over. Well, I visually have like an idea of what it might, you know, like we, a rolling you have, reel of ribbon where you have told 
A, you B, actually C. run just a computer. It was basically yeah. built like a. Actually, they were IBM Selectrics that had yep. the right G codes on there, so that you could <clears> type <throat> the G codes in there, and then it would produce this tape, which now you could feed into the NC machine, and it would go through all the holes. It would do all the programming, so to speak, in there from that. And then, of course, you'd hit the start button, see what the hell happens. Uh-huh. Assuming the little hanging chads didn't fall oh, out. Oh, yeah. And that, that, you know, <laughs> that does happen. They would actually have a hanging chad. If it did that, well, it would read something different. You're talking about like where it punched a hole, but the, the, the little piece, piece of paper was flipped around? Yeah. 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 I didn't yeah. know that had a fucking name, hanging chad. Oh, Florida election, man. Oh, yeah. Hanging chads. Yeah. Huh. So anyway, that's what I did. I ended up over there actually working, actually at the time, for Holland, Holland, they were setting up NC machines in the bottom of the building. And as you go up, of course, they you got- You said Holland and Holland? Yeah. H&H, the, yeah. the British double rifle mm-hmm. company? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in, uh, in, the, in the meantime, I was there for about two and a half years, and I actually finished up my, my college degree in engineering at the School of Sciences at Oxford. And then oh, so you point. you were in England? Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. So I missed I missed that. An onion man. He's I, got lots of layers. Holy shit! So so after winning the competition, Spokane, I was hired by Dual. Dual made a lot of and they machines. and they sent you to to Oxford for your undergraduate. Nope, nope, nope. They did not. What that all that all transpires at the time for how long I was there, that I was actually sponsored by Holland & Holland, and that's how I got into oh. engineering school. Did you, I mean, did you get to go to the Holland & Holland factory? And I was I wor- I was literally working on the that, bottom. That's the company up there? Duol still around. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's still here. Still building bandsaws. Got who, great bandsaws. Who, who brought you to Europe? Who brought me to Europe? Yep. Duol. Duol did. Yeah, because okay. I was there to help set up NC machines. And got it. Got yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Did, did and they're it, great guys, but they don't, they don't look at gunsmiths from America, like Gensmiths from Europe, because there's a lot of things that are different. Well, you've like, seen that Holland and Holland video where the guy takes chisels and files and makes stuff look like it's within a thousandth tolerance and fits it together so te- you know so well it looks like it was machined. Mm. I mean, they were doing that when you went there. Oh right? yeah, oh absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is all scraped in. It mm. still is. Yeah, I know it's amazing. They just don't have to do as much scraping today as they used to, yeah. as they used to, because they got more accurate parts coming off of there. Hmm. But they still, they still, everything is still scraped in, and they sell it for two hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think you can buy. You know, if you look at uh, their shotguns, their sporting grade shotgun, I think it's forty grand or forty two grand. <laughs> so it's not cheap, but boy, I tell you what, the labor in it—that's what it's all about. And they're very proud of their products as well. You know. Huh. It should be the best of the best. They're one of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's all That's all up to conjecture. And if you go over there in certain pubs, there will be brawls. No, there's Wesley over Richards that. and there's... there's uh, oh, yeah. You know, you can go in and, there yeah. and if you got eight guys that are there from Holland and Holland and you say, hey, yeah, look at that. the Purdy is the best shotgun in the world, that's you'll a find fight? out it'll wow. be a problem. It's a fight. The Royal hand. is a beautiful gun. I like when you go back to the homepage, Luke. Like, think about that compared to American gun shops. Yeah. <laughs> They're not quite the same. Let's go take a picture in the next room. <laughs> That's actually just the waiting parlor. They didn't, The waiting you know, parlor. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's oh. awesome. So, you know, if you have a bespoke gun, which obviously may be a little bit off of rifle barrels, but that's something that's custom made to you. Mm. Still to this day, Holland Holland, if you're willing to spend the money, will have one of their gun fitters come over here. They use a tri-gun, which absolutely everything's movable on it. The, the form can be made longer. 
The huh. triggers can be moved in the system in, inside there so you can get the trigger length, the oh. grip style, the comb height, the overall length, the cant, the twist of the stock, the whole nine yards. True custom. It is. It's masterfully fit, and it's done by guys that have been doing it for freaking ever. They got like it says it has a Dallas gun room. Do there they you do go. That, do they do that there? You think? Uh, you could go. You can go there and and, and get go. fitted. Yeah, you could get fitted. You mm. might find something on the wall too. You never know. <clears throat> I'd look like each one of those rifles is probably what I paid for my house. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. There's some some expensive. Yeah, their double there. rifles are just stupid expensive. They are. That's the dream gun to get a 470 Nitro Express built by them for me Oof. and go on an elephant hunt. Yep. yep. There you go. That'd be fun. Yeah. So you got over there, you got to the UK. Mm-hmm. What, what happened after that? Oh, other other than that, you know, I, I did what I did for them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, um, we ended up back over here after a while because I was finished with them and I actually was uh, accepted into MIT because I was second out of 465 students in Oxford. So I was right at the top. I didn't make it the E top. Between me and him, there was probably, he's a really nice guy anyway, about 0.03 percentage points difference between. Between first and second. Between first. <laughs> you mean you know, first and second in, is, you in know. your class at yeah. Oxford? Yeah. In, and in, that got in you into MIT. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. They actually took it. I got the, my... Uh, uh, I got my master's in a very short amount of time. It was all free ride. I got the free ride for that. Okay. You know, it, and then we we uh, we went on to doing things not totally gun related after that. Mm. We worked in the plastic injection molding industry for a while, you know, and things like that. Out of those three hundred something students, how many were Americans? Oh, I think I was the only one. It's really? kind of like playing cowboys and Indians, and I was the <laughs> Indian, man. I think I was the only American in there at that time. That was mm. a bit, it was kind of an oddball thing to even have and happen, yeah. but it's just because of my, my stint, the time that I was there, and they said, well, you should go over here. Okay. Was there any, like, prejudice against you, you think, from, like, the instructors, or no? no they, they looked at it as maybe... Uh, you're from America. I don't know if you really know what we do over here or you understand our philosophies and gotcha. stuff. And to technically, you kind of don't, <laughs> be honest mm-hmm. with you. On the other but, hand, we saved them in World War II, and those Brits would have remembered that. Yes. So that, yeah, One thing that they're not is they're very cordial, regardless if they hate your guts. That's one thing you can get out of the guys over there. And they've got, they, they also they also have a standard, the way they live, you know? And so it, it's a different, you know, than what we do over here by far. I mean, you know, I come out of Montana, you know, and end up in probably at that time the most densely placed. And the big question, believe it or not, from everybody I went over, they go, oh, you know, where are you from? And I says, I'm from, I'm from, you know, from the USA. I, mean, I grew up in Montana. Oh, is there Indians still there? And I go, yeah, <laughs> there is. But not like you think there's Indians. It yeah. was a very big concern that, you know, when I went back, you know, that I was going back. There's a couple guys said, now you're going to come back? And I go, well, yeah, I'm only going to be gone for like a week and a half. You know, to, and uh, they said, well, what about the Indians? And I go, don't worry about the Indians. <laughs> They're not that big a deal. But, you know, they look at the West over Indians. there significantly different at that time than yeah. we look at it today and they say oh do people carry guns in, in there and I go yeah they do you know and he says is there gunfights and I go 
only when there's a lot of drunks, drunks and, <laughs> and there's a woman involved. Right. She actually was involved in Missoula in an actual shootout in a bar over a woman. Huh. And it wasn't me that was involved in it. My, my ass was on the floor. Mm-hmm. Okay, you couldn't get any lower. If I could have found a way under the tile, I would have been there, you know. But, uh, you know, so it's a different culture, huge different culture between mm-hmm. the two countries. Yeah, mm. yeah I was, was in Kosovo, and we had it was a peacekeeping mission. We had these tents signed up in this little camp, and it was us and the British and these two GP mediums, you know, like a big wall tent. And we were constantly going at it, and he said, cordial. They, they like to offend you, but they are cordial. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that took the pressure off of us of arguing with the Brits is the only thing they Brits hate more than Americans is the Aussies. <laughs> so Boy, the, Aus- the Australians showed up into another tent, and they just they left us alone, and they started attacking each other. And it was it's always around the proper English. It's hilarious. It is. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> I bet. And, you know, and you, I, you know, I never really had to deal with the Australians like you had, you know, mm-hmm. that in there. But that's that's very much true. There's certain things. Another one is, is like in the gun industry. Oh, that's a continental gun. It ain't very good. Mm-hmm. No matter where it came off the continent, it is not any good. And they, huh. they you look at it, you know, you go to Edinburgh, stuff like that. There's some really great names that are up there in the firearms industry, you know, and worldwide recognized. I really got to come out of London. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet. That's where the real <clears throat> stuff is made. Hmm. And I'll bet you Butch Searcy would disagree with that. Oh, he's, I'm sure he's, he would. He's a custom double rifle maker in Cal- California. Yeah, I think. California. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So you got through that. You mm-hmm. ended up at MIT. I'm still trying to have this links into making barrels. Mm. It's strange as ever, ever all get out. You know, I've always liked it. I actually... When I went uh, over here and was at the community college, the way I paid my way through community college is I had a place that I had literally a table about the size of this, and this would have been a beautiful one because this is tougher than what I had. I actually built muzzleloading rifles, and mm-hmm. I put myself through college doing nothing but building muzzleloading rifles. But that time, they were a really big craze, you know? So I've always been involved in it. My grandfather, he, he was kind of a part-time gunsmith. He worked in, um, he had a, a, a farm, you know, in this wintertime, not as much to do. So he was always in there. I was always doing with him. I was 12 years old when I built my first rifle, first bolt-action rifle, hmm. you know, and that was an action, uh, a barrel, chamber it up, and then take a block of wood and build a stock for it, you know. No pre-carbs or any of that stuff. So it goes well, way back on that. And, of course, I, it really helped me out a lot when I was actually making a living off of it for a while. And I also did that. I also ended up working for, in the, you know, the, the electronics industry. And that's how I met Bruce Tom, actually, in uh, plastic injection molding, tool and die work. But I was always involved in it. And I got to a point in here with one the company I was working with that I was working so many hours at home in my own shop uh, you know plus the hours working there and they were saying hey we're going to move a, a lot of this which at that time happened to Mexico you know and uh, so it was like one of those things there that he says yeah we're looking at re- you know uh, reduction in force who want who anybody want to volunteer in my arm I just it was up I didn't even know I put it up. So obviously <laughs> that was the thing to do. <laughs> and and so I ended up doing that, of course, the severance package and everything, and never basically looked back from there. I'd always been in the gun business one way or another. I had people approach me over the years on building barrels and how to do that. 
and I helped a lot of these guys out, some of them probably more than I should have. And the, some of the companies are still, the, the tooling is still circulating around. The company names have changed over the years because, you know, you go in there and, and regardless if you're talking about us or any barrel maker, procedure on how you do it, you do it that way because the results that you get. And I don't think we do anything uh, the same as anybody else other than what we really want is super straight drilled holes. And I know Blaine and I will talk about that here in a minute. But, you know, I always did that when it come to me, wanted to, wanted to start a button rifle barrel business. He was big, huge into shooting. Same as me, grew up out of Great Falls, came out, retired out of the military, had some money, and he wanted to do this. So we started, okay, develop button rifle barrels. And he, he persisted with that, and he, he ran it for a while, and then they, we sold to somebody in upper state New York, from what I understand. And uh, I've had other people over the years that have... Uh, uh, have asked me questions about how the hell do you button a rifle barrel and there's a lot to it but when it comes all the way down to it somebody at the very end here only about 10 about 10 years ago and that was jerry bleck which is my partner in ace barrels at this time um he wanted to build this business and he says i want to build really really good barrels and i says well i'm not interested in this if you want to build one barrel every three weeks for yourself because there's a hell of a lot of work goes into this and i says you're going to bust your ass for a lot and when it all comes down to it the money you're going to spend the money you're going to spend and the amount of barrels you're, you're going to put out there you know they're going to be a thousand dollar barrel each one of them regardless you built them yourself so i says if you're looking at it from a production standpoint great well he says yeah that's what i want to do i want to do it for my son he wanted you know because there was a at that time a little bit of a crunch in the housing industry in, in spokane you know go back 10 12 years and you know he didn't know if he was going to have a job so i said okay fine so we got involved in this and it got very technical because i said i'm not interested in building button rifle barrels because there is things you can control, but there's a whole bunch of stuff you can't control. It's just the way it is, you know? So we went into and building cut rifle barrels. Out of that, the only way to really get a machine was either buy something that was literally wore out and you'd have to rebuild it. Or you could go to Absolute. There's a few other places that will build you a machine and they're fairly expensive. And uh, crazy money and no tooling, none of that kind of stuff. I says, why don't we just sit down here and let's just go ahead and build servo motors and get some, uh, you know, get the drivers and all the stuff we need in there, and we'll make this run like it should, and we'll make it the best way we can. Not the cheapest way we can, but the best way we can. And he was all about that. Hmm. I ended up actually, because of the amount of work and machine machine work I did for him and all the engineering and everything, well, yeah, I ended up at the end, his son didn't want to do anything with it, hmm. which was kind of a bummer. I think Jerry felt, you know, but it's like, okay, <laughs> it's this building full of machinery, <laughs> you know, what's going to go on? And I says, well, I don't know. We ended up selling, you know, he was making a few barrels and I was still working out of my own shop. And uh, then uh, Voodoo Gunworks called up one day and said, we just found out you can't buy barrels anywhere. And I go, yeah, you know, it's, we've always had these crunches where there's nothing to buy and it's, everything's overbought. And he says, can you guys build 22s? And uh, they talked to Jerry about this. And then Jerry called me and says, you think you want to get involved in that? And I go, shit, no, I got way too much other garbage going on to get involved in a, in a, in a barrel business at this time. And... Um, at, at the end, I thought about it for a minute. I go, well, hell, 
they can't get any barrels. They can go up from they could go from twenty guns a month to three hundred and fifty or five hundred guns a month. You could actually that looks like a, a, a venue. So we gave them. We sat down there and said, "Okay." I called Jerry back. I said, "Tell them we're interested, but they got to buy all the tooling up front." And uh, so he did that, and they just said, "How big a check do you want?" And that's <laughs> nice. literally what it was. I said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Well, I want to cover all my tooling." So about that time, it was about seven to eight thousand bucks for one caliber to build, you know. And we went into the rimfire thing, and we went through and done a huge pile of of R and D in it as well to figure out what makes a twenty-two rimfire work. How do you make that thing really work? And you don't get to deal with the ammunition. You can buy different ammunitions, but you really don't get to build your own ammunition, mm-hmm. even though there's some guys out there that, that are doing that now. But in all reality, how do you make this shoot? You know, how do you make it that it be accurate? And we went through a lot of things. We found out, first of all, that the six grooves were better than five grooves, and uh, the four grooves were worthless. And to be honest with you, we even made a lot of eight and ten group barrels hmm. at first, <laughs> thinking, okay, how much drive force do we need? to keep that bullet from slipping and we just we found we settled on six because it works so damn well compared to even five and i know there's companies out there that build fives and they shoot really well i get that uh but we just with all the stuff we did we ended up at this six groove rifling and, mm. it, and it's kind of per, went through our whole company i mean so the same shape of rifling whether it's a 22 rim fire or a bolt a center fire barrel is it the same shape of rifling so six ballard six ballard well, it's very. It's going to be very similar. You know, you get in. You get in there, and what we got to do is, is if we, if it mattering on how much we disturb the bullet. Okay, because what you really want this thing to do is soft lead. You just don't want that thing to skid at all right before it starts rotating. You want to make sure that thing does that. Obviously, in a good bench, and Blaine's already kind of been there a little bit with the twenty-two thing. Is that you want that thing to engrave the rifling? You want to when you put it in there, you pull it back out. You'll see the rifling on the bullet mm. if you don't 22s usually just don't do that well mm. and from so there's there, no throat or anything in there the rifle well, comes all the way up to the bullet it, it no there is a taper there's still a throat in there but okay. the actual you know instead of having like a free bore or whatever you know a parallel section like you would in most centerfire guns it basically goes right into mm-hmm. goes right in the right right into the rifling yep. and you want to have that in the right spot so that you get some engraving it seems to be the way to control it the best Hmm. You know, so uh, as we went around and we found out and modified everything, it doesn't take a whole bunch for a 22. The big one is is not to have the proper amount of resistance so the powder does its job. Hmm. It's a huge, huge thing. And I know Blaine's over there shaking his head, and it's because, man, it's not only technically <laughs> a rimfire thing, but it also relates to center fire as well. So bore, bore diameter. Boring groove diameter yeah. are, a, are a big deal there. Okay. Yeah, you know, and, and we go through there in 1 and 16. Uh, Voodoo had a, had what they wanted, 1 and, one and 16 twist. As far as barring grooves, they weren't too concerned about that. We started sending stuff down there, and, you know, this goes back five or six years when most people look at a 22, and if they shot an inch and a half group at 100 yards, they had the best 22 rifle in the universe. Mm. You know, except for a few guys out there that are shooting bench rests, they're really dug into it. It was that way. Well... You know, we went from, uh, you know, they went from finding barrels that they could shoot an inch and a half to barrels that all of a sudden shot under an inch. And then from there, we groomed things down to where they were starting to shoot smaller than that. And now, you know, if you, if you buy a 22 that's a custom built, it should be with the right ammo. It should be under an inch any day of the week. That one that you helped 
uh, Taylor did all the mm-hmm. work on it. Um, I think, and it was on a CZ action too. It wasn't even a yeah. custom action. Yeah. He he sent me a group when he was working it up. It was point three at a hundred yards, a five shot group. Out of wow. Twenty two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah, I was like, wow. That's... What do you mean when he was working it up? Well, he was trying a bunch of different ammo and yeah. testing and seeing okay. what was going to shoot the best. And I haven't heard back from him since, but it, it appears to be shooting competitive. This was for an ELR-22 as mm. well, I think, what, out to <laughs> oh, 400 so, yards. Yeah. Yeah. About out to 400 seems to be really pushing it. Yeah. yeah. So, that yeah, it was way more accurate than I thought. And years ago, I've still got it. It's a Remington 541T with a heavy barrel. Mm-hmm. I got that thing to shoot 11 sixteenths of an inch at 100 yards on a day when there was no wind at all. And that was playing with a bunch of different ammo, but that was hard to repeat with that. I'll bet this one that we built that you helped us build probably is pretty consistent under half minute at a hundred. I, w- I would think if he's in the point three range, because that's really seems to be the gold standard as far as hundred yard bench rest twenty twos, which is a big thing. It used to be fifty fifty yards. yards. Yeah. Now it's all a hundred yards. And if you got a gun that shoots, it's got to shoot half inch or slightly less than that to stay in the winter circle, and you mm. will do that. <laughs> So you know that's that's really hanging it out there. But like I said, we took the the thing looking at it and say we can't change the twenty two shell, but we can change the bore and groove dimensions and you know the width of the grooves, the whole nine yards to let that powder be consistent. Mm. We're working with with another company right now that's we do they do a lot of test testing of that. And I, we went into a little thing here uh, not too long ago. I said. He was looking at, he bought, got some money in 13 twist. He wanted long range barrels and everybody's saying, okay, you need more twist. Well, when we did the, the mathematics, we have an algorithm uh, that we've designed, which would, if we had one of these walls here, the mathematical equation wouldn't fit on one of these walls. It'd take oh, one wow. and a half of them to, to, to do that. But uh, obviously broken down computers are a lovely thing because they take, <laughs> they take all the slide rule work out of that. And uh, by the way, a slide rule for you younger folks <laughs> in the room. Is that like an abacus? It's kind very of. similar. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a little bit more precise. But other than that, it's still racial proportion. So, yeah, it is an abacus. They built the SR-71 with a slide rule. So. There you go. Yeah, they did. And, you know, of course, there's the Tacoma Narrow, Narrows Bridge that blew down in 1965 was also built with a slide but rule. It went to the so, moon know. on a slide rule, didn't we? We did. Yeah, yeah we did. It's actually... Allegedly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> I, I, you know, if you've ever been down to the Kennedy Space Center, you need to go there and look at what that guy sat in. It is freaking crazy. If I, I looked at that and I says, you, to get me in that and launch me up in that in that capsule... You'd have to shoot me in the head and throw me in there because I ain't going in any it, other way. It probably looked like that submarine all those millionaires just paid to die in. Yeah, it was smaller. Yeah, yeah. yeah. tight. Holy smokes! Well, I mean, just like the five-gallon bucket in the corner, so you can take a piss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that no, kind of thing. No way. Yeah, it's oh. crazy. There's no I mean, there's way. like on the outside, there's there's big old Phillips head screws holding this thing together, and really bad welds mm. by today's standards. They're very bad welds, but you know, they they did that. Mm. But big balls. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like with anything, you know, when it comes to accuracy in it, you have to work with all the components at one time, and we do that a lot. We do a lot of testing before we even brought out. We just got you guys six millimeter barrels out mm-hmm. here. I don't know how yes, many you did. Shoot. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. We have we have Ryan's wonderful <laughs> box. If you're yeah. on the YouTube, we got this bejeweled box that they delivered the first yes. six mil barrel to Ryan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there it is. That Ryan is was the basically box. beating a dead horse about this six mil for the last yeah. 
three. Well, basically since we did the first podcast at the beginning of the year, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, he was like, beating that horse ever since then. This is six months in the. Yeah, in the six months. In the, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But you said yeah, it was, it, you said you put a bow on it, and boy, did you. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. my, my boys did the, did the glued them all on there. And they, the only thing that they really said was, is that thank God it was a 22 inch barrel because uh, if it had been a 26 yeah. inch barrel, I don't know if we could have got it done in one day. <laughs> <laughs> I, we, we were sitting here talking. I was like, oh man, they had to have a daughter or wife do that. And then when they came in the shop, they're like, no, 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 no we, we did. did. <laughs> yeah. when, they, when they brought it in, oh, Ryan was hunting. I actually took a picture of it and I yeah. said, he happened to have service wherever he was. Yeah. And, uh. I think you were in the, oh, we're not supposed to talk about where you were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty freaking awesome. Yep. Well, there it is. I, I see that we still have it here on the table. Well, now that it had to shift gears, we came ha- halfway through hunting season. Then that's out for right now? No, no. It's going to go on something special. They're working on something special with bat, and that's going to go oh, on that. Okay. Great, the new, great. Well, it's just the short action version right. of the Vesper. It's going to have a 75-degree bolt throw now, which is mm-hmm. pretty awesome. Bruce is excited about that. Then they're coming out with a new... A new competition action called the Bat Hammerhead. Oh, okay. Which is also up for pre-order at this point. So it'll have a 75-degree two-lug throw, but also a dual-position bolt stop. So it's going to have a BR dasher length pull, which is 380,000 shorter than a standard pull. So -hmm. technically, you got two different features there that can make you a faster shooter. So less pickup, less pullback. Yep. Yeah. 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 So a couple things there, yeah. And eventually, I guess we need to convince them to make a 22 action, too. Yeah. Well, then what this one's actually going to have, we have our stock coming out, so it's going to have that, the stock and the uh, light scope, so it's going to be seven-pound rifle all up, oh, should be. great. 6UM, of course, God's, car- God's cartridge. There we go. <laughs> the new rock stock we just finished, we uh, basically took a we took a donor stock and bondoed and sanded, and we just sent that off to Stockies. is going to be making it for us here very shortly. We've got a meeting today to finalize all the details. Today being... For those rock stock followers, today being November 7th, we have a meeting with stockies, and within about 30 days, we should have the test in our hand. Yep. Pretty Good. cool. Yeah, that is. It's all Being cool. Awesome it's all stock. exciting. Oh, yeah. yeah. It is very exciting. So only thing you guys, I guess we're jumping ahead a little bit, the only thing we're missing now is a I take is a 338. Yeah. 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 It's it's the next one. We're in the process now uh, of uh, finally, uh, actually, when I came over here, I stopped working on the cutter heads themselves so we're right. we're almost there uh we've already we already got our holes we already got all of that stuff all taken care of so it's just down to making sure the cutter head does its job right okay and i'm and still waiting on my heavy varmint 6mm foregroove for my bench rest gun i understand that <laughs> might as well bring that up you know just say <laughs> throw it know, on, why not throw it onto the pile pile it yeah just that's keep that's that probably the, the one reason why blaine wanted to be in here was to I, check I on his fucking barrel me on that <laughs> yes. thing, and i get that waited yeah. the whole time for that moment yeah yeah, yeah he's that four groove thing and you know we did in six millimeter we do make the four grooves as well when i set it up we actually set the the guns up at this time and we haven't wore a barrel totally out yet hmm. they're both out there still doing their same job they're both at they're both very accurate but we're only at about a thousand rounds hmm. in a four and a six groove hmm. now, i know guys like four grooves you know and uh so we said you know, no reason to really, uh, you know, sit down and say, oh, you've got to use a six. I'm still a favor of the six because I think they last longer. I can't say that the four group is a bad thing because we're getting identical results out of either one. Well, w- when we're shooting groups in the ones at a thousand yards with four grooves, you know, they, they do okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, and yeah. I, I don't know why, uh, but it seems to work. 
And so that's what probably what, what I'll Well, what do you say? Maybe six grooves would be just as good. Maybe. Maybe. But when we don't, we're not going to keep a barrel much past about 1,300 rounds either. They mm. don't shoot competitively yeah. anymore. Yeah. So you, you know, maybe just, not it's, how it's much just a have to. weird specialized application is all it is. Yeah. Maybe it you is. could be a new trendsetter, a new record holder with a six Ballard. Yeah, maybe. We'll, well, we'll maybe what, we'll maybe what Mark's first. saying is that the six would last longer than thirteen hundred. It might. It, yeah. might. It, it might. It might give you more accuracy for a longer period of time. You know, most of the time, people who are really looking for that aren't bench rest guys because you you have to stay on top of the gilt edge accuracy and a new barrel that's just properly broke in is gonna do that yeah. for you. Oh. That's just the way it is. But when you start looking at guys like that are shooting, the, you know, extreme long range or even even the PRC stuff, they like to have if they can get another 250 or 300 rounds out of the barrel and keep the accuracy, competitive mm. accuracy. Why wouldn't you switch? Mm. So make me you know? two then. Make me a four and a six, and I'll run them side by side. Wow! <laughs> there we go. There he goes. Now he, see he just you know he's pinching me for another one. And the, but the, the problem the with bench rest guys is, is even if the six Ballard proved to be everything we just said it might be. It would still have to replicate that ten years in a row before anybody would adopt it. Probably. Yeah. Well, Blaine said you said there's nothing been new that's changed the game in a while, so maybe this is it. Could be. I think the last thing was a six BR Ackley that that Alex brought back into popularity. I don't know five six years ago. Before that, it was a Dasher, and then Walt Berger's 105 Hybrid Targets. So we'll mm-hmm. see. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. We'll get you there. That's we'll... the fun part. Mm-hmm. So 33 is next. Yes, it is. 33 is next. We hope to be. Uh, I will be shooting by, by before the end of this month here. I don't know if by the end of the month they will be out on the market. I heard uh, from another local gunsmith that someone's been trying to get you to make 25. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Well, no, af- after 33, what are you doing next? Actually, after 33, is probably is going to be 25. Okay. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that uh, you know, we've had an uptick in uh, uh, 22 centerfire barrels because of the 22 arc. People want to get out there and do that. You know, it's looking like the 20, the 25 Creedmoor is going to come out sometime mid next year. Mm. That's what we understand from Hornaday. Okay. So you know, we'll we'll be we'll be up and before that. Mm. I don't have it up and before then. Yeah, I mean, 25 Creed. You already get head stamp brass now from Peterson, and and guys are definitely right. running it. Yeah, and, uh, what we're looking for is where we end up, and we and we can probably talk about Sammy for four or five hours. But where does Sammy light into all of this mm-hmm. kind of thing? Is Sammy influencing what you're doing next? Uh, they will only influence us to a certain point. Uh, be honest with you, we broke from Sammy on the seven millimeter. Mm-hmm. You know, and the reason for it is we got much better results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Can you explain kind of like a, what you did different? Well, you know, it goes for a long ways. Uh, I probably even got some bullets from you. I talked to a lot of gun makers and a lot of major hand loaders, and I said, I'm looking for all seven millimeter bullets. What I want to know is, is what you have. I said, I'd like to have two or three of them, and I want to know where they are and how old they are. So we were actually measuring bullets that went all the way back into the 1930s to present day and Mm. measuring for nothing more than outside diameter and not necessarily consistency and, you know, overall length and what they would do. Bearing surfaces, all these things that become an issue when you start designing the inside of a barrel. You know, what we found out is it's just a scramble of all kinds of things. If if we look at we go back to 7 millimeter when it really started out, it had a 275 bore in it. Mm. Okay, so 
What happened, I don't know. After you get to about 1920-30 in Europe, where 7 millimeter was a big deal, but, you know, you also got to keep in time at that time, we're talking about a German cartridge, not very popular in the United States, so who cared what they were doing with it? They actually went to 276. Hmm. And later on in 63, when Winchester came out with the 284, and you know the what the 100 you know model 100 model 100 they were then at that time sammy was already there very well established and they just changed it to 277 Hmm. for what reason i still have no idea but what we did find out is we can run a 277 bore we can run a 276 bore and the pressure curve is almost identical you know, it is extremely close. It's so close you could say that they're identical. So right now, Sammy in the U.S. is 277. Yes. And and but your barrels are 276. They're 276. And as far as the end consumer is concerned, this really doesn't matter. You know, no. no. These results are not important as long as you're shooting well. Exactly. No. You know, and and the thing, the reason why we did that is because we got much better results mm-hmm. with the 276 than mm-hmm. we did with 276. That is common too, right? Amongst all the different calibers, eight thou difference between land and grooves is common. So it, you're it's very, very much so. Course, yeah, eight thou difference is yeah. it's nothing new. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. not. It's nothing really new. We see, you know, a few people want, like I said, and believe it or not, we do do that in six mil. We do two thirty seven as well now. Oh, you do. Yeah, yeah we I do that for now. whatever reason. That's become the popular size. So. And yeah, you know, and here we're 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 limiting. You're right. And a lot of people say, I don't want a two thirty six. I want two thirty seven. So you know, we got to the point there. And I'll be honest with you. I was looking through an old one of the old toolboxes in there, and there was three little three little uh, sleeves about this long in there. And I go, What the hell are these? You know, but they were bought like ten years ago, and they were they were a two two thirty seven reamers to cut two thirty seven bores. Huh. So, you know, we put that all together, and we can make a 237 as well as 236. We, we should probably explain to the listeners here, like, land and groove difference. So when you talk about, mm-hmm. if, we're, if we're talking about a 6-millimeter bullet, it's .243 inches, which is the, the groove diameter. Correct. So that's Correct. the furthest, that's down in the down in the cut rifle. Yeah. It right. is the bullet diameter Yes, for your outermost. And then the grooves come in, and they impress. So, so every bullet has to be impressed upon to induce the spin. That yes. We're talking about that inner diameter of the top of the groove that pushes it on the bullet. That's where we said, that's where you're saying 237 on a 243. Mm-hmm. And we said on a 7 mil, it is 276 on a 284. So right. eight thou difference. So on each side, that, that groove that pushes into the bullet is four thousandths. Roughly, you know, matter on what it is, most of yeah. them are that way. There's a little bit of exceptions down in the 22 calibers in the 20s because it just becomes maybe more than what the bullet structure can take. And you guys are playing with inner diameters of the of the grooves. Yes, we do. Not yes, we we play with that as well as the bore diameters. But but there's also another calculation that's a total sum of surface area. Correct, correct. There, so there is you, a surface if you, area. If you draw your finger up around the lands and grooves, you have to add up all that real estate mm-hmm. to equal another number. Correct. Because you can only have so many. And if you increase that number, that's more drag on the bullet. And if yeah. you decrease that number, that's less drag on the bullet. Correct. These are the fine tolerances that you're playing with to the, to the tenth of a thousandth. 
in order to make the best shooting barrels in the market. Yep. Yeah, okay. we, we really do, and we watch that stuff really close to the point. Like I, I may, may have not said this. I probably did before. Each of our barrels have a number on the back, and you'll see that a lot of it will be the same. Like right now, you'll see the last four digits on there. One's 23, and the other one's 23. And why is that? Well, that's lot steel lot number 23 in built in 23 mm -hmm. so the other numbers are basically the serial number or the barrel number of it as it comes out of the drill so we have all of that stuff and we catalog everything that that barrel has mm -hmm. before it gets to go out it has to meet absolutely all those criterias and it's checked before it's boxed mm -hmm. right before it's boxed mm -hmm. if there's something there that is not what it's supposed to be, it gets set off to the side. It may go someplace. It may not go anywhere. How many total people you have making barrels? We have three. Right and now. how many barrels are you making per month, average? Right now, it, it actually, you know, things slow down now. It's speeding right back up, which is pretty typical. You get that little summer slowdown in yeah. there. But, you know, right now we're building about a, between 80 and 100 barrels a month. 100 barrels a month. Gone, yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we nice. can usually do that. Yeah. Okay. I got a layman's question. Sure. I never really thought about until you talking about groove surface area. Mm -hmm. Take a four groove, five groove, six groove. Mm -hmm. How do you guys, how does the pressure get regulated from if there's a six groove touching a barrel compared to a four without hitting pressure faster with that six? They're just not as deep. So you're, well, you're pushing on the bullet less. Well, actually, there's there's two there's a couple things that go on in there, and again, we could go to the whiteboard and make you an equation, but it really mm -hmm. won't make let's, much let's, sense. The let's simple go, people dumb it down. Yeah, we're yeah. we're gonna have to do it for the younger generation. <laughs> they, they don't have that time in there, and I know Blaine agrees with me on that. <laughs> and uh, what we look at in there is is actually if we look at a four or six group, we do most of that in there is uh, you still have to have, regardless of what it is, you still have to make that, the, the bullet has to spin immediately in there. As soon as it moves into the rifling, if it isn't rotating and it slips in there, it can actually tear the jacket right then and there. And it's done, because you gotta keep in mind, that's the highest pressure you have on that cartridge, is when that bullet just gets into the barrel. That's as tough as it gets on the mm -hmm. damn thing. Okay, and I, we the one thing between a six and a four group barrel is is that to make a four group barrel shoot, we got to run about thirty two percent of it of uh, of the bore has to be lands. Mm -hmm. If we go much less than that, and we've tried it many times, we end up with inconsistencies. You run at wind with. Uh, accuracy problems 32 percent. what's the percentage on the six just so we have the numbers the, the, the six we're getting there would be 28 percent. okay so, so basically so like we're saying you're pushing into the bullet more or deeper no we don't push in deeper we're talking it's about wider, the width the width the, the width of the yeah lens. and it seems to take a four groove needs that little extra amount in there to use part of the top of the land to drive mm. the bullet yeah, I just see that's what, just the way it what's is. What's the percentage on your four group then compared to your six? Uh, uh, thirty-two our, and twenty-eight. About thirty-two uh, and, and twenty-eight, and we can actually on certain certain ones we go less than twenty-eight on them. To be honest with you, because we can, and that's just from testing. I think if you're trying to picture this as a listener, basically the bullet gets smashed into some rifling that induces twist, and there has to be a certain amount of surface area touching the bullet. If you have less surface area, so the the lands are not as wide or they're not as deep then the bullet's going to make its way through the bore quicker, which could potentially not let all the powder burn? Well, I think you'd probably see all the powder burn because there's still, I mean, if you stick a bullet in a barrel, it's not an easy task to get out of there. Yeah. The, the big one is to make sure and assure that the bullet 
as rotating like it's supposed to be right off the get-go. Okay. And if you don't do that, you know, once the, the, the bullet gets down the barrel, to be honest with you, you know, a lot of your consistency and stuff comes out of the first two inches of your barrel, and most of the accuracy comes out of the last two or three inches of the barrel. What's in between there is not as significant. Say that again one more time. About two inches of it at the very first has to do with consistency. Consistency, meaning extreme spread, Velocities, standard deviation. Yes, all of those things. From the there. first couple inches. So how yeah. the bullet impresses on those right. lands initially, mm-hmm. that's your consistent velocity. Yeah, that's where you can you can be more consistent. And, uh-huh. and that's done with lead angles and all the things that can be done from a chambering standpoint. And then the... the Accuracy, yeah, is the last few yeah. inches. Yeah, we, we we really love to have it every time that we and we we do that. Some we always like to have the muzzle one ten thousandths, which sounds like a little small number, and it is smaller at the muzzle than it is at the breech. Just out of the fact is, is if there's anything in there that would cause a problem, that would cost the biggest one. Okay. And I'm sure Blaine will agree with me that. The last thing you want is a worn muzzle because that's just telling you they're going wherever they mm. and they're going to end up going. You know, when you're, you're talking about the bullet needing to start spinning correctly, that goes in with how we chamber here, which we're anal about getting that area in front of the throat exactly straight, dialed in with the lathe spindle. That way, when the bullet leaves, it's its best chance to go in and engrave. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, engrave the same all the way around. Yeah. Mm. And that's that, another that, biggie. And I think it's one of the reasons why... I, you know our gun shoots so well is that's why you look at when you when you go in there with the bore scope and you look at all the grooves and how that lead hit those grooves you're looking for that make sure it's even yeah it's even the all the way around from the uh or just so that they all basically if they all look the same no matter how yeah. it was machined or what as, as long as they all look the same in a circle as you're rotating the barrel with the bore scope and then it should be yeah. everything should be even okay yeah yeah that's how that's exactly what you need if you don't have that part there yeah, you knows what you get. And there's gun barrels I've seen that you can't look down them from one end to the other, and there've been shooters. That huh. you know, but the fact remains is, if the throat's in there crooked and the chamber's in there, it's not going to shoot very yeah. well. It is <laughs> just never do. So going back to what you talked about, the last three inches being the accuracy, <laughs> the accuracy of the barrel. Part. Hmm? If you had a steel barrel that seemed to not shoot very well, but you had consistent velocities, could you cut off the last few inches of the barrel? And maybe see an improvement in the in the barrel's accuracy. You can you can do that. That's some of that can happen because of barrel harmonics alone. Mm-hmm. And I know you know uh, Blaine's over there nodding, but you know that's part of it. But yeah, the issue is yeah, if you want to if you want to turn it down, mm. we really like, and this is what we end up getting. Uh, our cutters are made to cut isometrically, which means that, that the tension against it makes it want to stay in one spot. So that works out really well for us. But there is a little break point in that. And usually what it is, as the chip load gets a little bit bigger in the cutter pocket, we just get just a little bit of, of, of the cutter move, and it makes the, bore, the, the muzzle just a touch smaller. Mm. And so it's just, you know, I sit down here and look at that. For a long time, we looked at how do you, you know, what do we want to take care of that? And the answer is no. It's a good thing. Oh, you remember Bill Coffey? Mm-hmm. And uh, all his stuff, where it was some precision shooting, probably twenty years ago when it was a big deal, he was doing twenty-two rimfire stuff, and he would get barrels from whatever manufacturer, and he would run it. I don't know if he was running a slug or a tight bushing or whatever. He would find the choke point in the barrel and cut it off there. He wanted mm-hmm. that right at the muzzle. Mm-hmm. I guess you could get away with that on a twenty-two because whether it's sixteen or twenty-eight inches, it's probably. I don't know how much difference in velocity it's going to make. 
But that was a big deal. He would cut all these barrels at differing lengths to try to get that choke point in order for it to shoot the best. It's a big deal in a, in a rimfire. Most of our rimfire barrels we use, we have a continual taper from uh, the breech to the muzzle of about yeah. two and a half to three ten thousandths because it's lead, first of all, and uh, uh, it, they, it handles that so well. You know, and they would look at a lot of really early guns when lead bullets were king. The target guns all have choke in them. Enough that when you push a patch through there, you go, "What's what's? Why am I st- mm-hmm. starting to get tight at the muzzle?" That's not as important in a centerfire, I take it. It's not as much, but you still can't have it bigger at the muzzle yeah. than it is at the breech. I mean, that's just a that's just a way to come up with mediocre results at best yeah. and struggling. You know, for somebody out there that's putting the guns together like you are, uh, it, all that makes is your day just freaking miserable. Mm. <laughs> I know I can tell you've been there before yeah, yeah. and it's just like don't want that. So that's one of the criteria of every barrel that comes out of our shop is that that muzzle is going to be the same size as a breech or a couple tenths smaller. Right. You know, but you know matter non caliber and stuff. It just seems to make a better barrel. They just shoot better, hmm. more predictable. Blaine doesn't go out there and doesn't cuss me nearly as much when they all come out that way. <laughs> you know. They a few times I chuckled before because a few times they say, "Do you remember?" And I keep remember. I keep waiting for. Do you remember Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> so is it truthful to say less grooves make faster barrels or not? No, no, no. That won't, less grooves won't do that. Matter of fact, what really creates creates anything is back pressure. Uh, smokeless powder works off of it in a different way than what you look at something burning it really requires pressure the more pressure it has it's the, the higher, opposite higher of what you pressure. would picture like physically yeah. it's the opposite of what you would picture where mm-hmm. a, a larger bore that wasn't squeezing the bullet as tight would make it go faster but it's the opposite it's totally the, the opposite. more back the more the more you hold the bullet and allow that pressure to build behind the bullet makes a fast barrel so it's a tight barrel that's a fast barrel yeah tight barrels are yeah. always going to be you faster. were explaining that with your test with 7mm i think you started out with a really large Diameter. Yeah, we did. We actually started out, and by this time here, we were already into this to 276. But yeah, we went to 284.4. And uh, because at that point there, we didn't know what the sweet spot was because there's a lot. There's been a lot of problems with seven millimeter barrels really shooting and producing well. And so we went in there and we went oversized to say, okay, be honest with you, there's companies that button rifle that they make our, their barrels three tenths over because they say that's what we need for the material that's displaced by the rif- by the rifling. Mm. And it doesn't work that way, but that's their theory. Um, it, that We sat down there and did that. What we would end up with with our test ammunition, which uh, would be 250 feet a second slower. This wow. was the first thing we had. <sighs> Accuracy wasn't worth a crap. Nothing was to work. You, you, you pick up the bullets, there'd be gas cutting on the sides of the bullets. Huh. It's like, okay, we ain't going here, you know, looking at controlling pressures, because it is a problem. How are you capturing your bullets during testing? We, we have a, at, at the range that we use, we actually have a big long box that we can catch those in. Oh, nice. Yeah, it goes about 35 feet or 40 feet. What would you, what would you compare? pellets, actually. <laughs> so a, a single 10,000, a single 10,000, a single tenth for those that are listening. So that's point zero 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 one inches. 
what would you compare that to a size that a person might know that could reference? <laughs> it, it's so it's so small, you know. And, and, and of course, in a, our barrel shop, when you work with it every day, you start saying, "Well, you know, that's like that's like fifty millions off." Well, yeah. you know, you're going, you know, you have to take everything in contact. The best thing to look at it, and the only way that I can I can tell you that is, is if you took a cigarette paper uh-huh. and you took it and laid it down, and you made. 10 equal slices of that cigarette paper then you'd have one ten thousand one ten and this is the this is these are the measurements you're playing in every day is it every, a, fuck, a fucking single tenth changing the, there, the there's actually a sing one single tenth could make or break if we sell the barrel we throw it in the scrub bin wow you know this very much this brings intense. up a, a question that a lot of guys have is a fast ver- barrel versus a slow barrel because you know occasionally Maybe not as much well, it can be a tenth Jake, difference. Jake would like to think. But, yeah. yeah, sometimes you get barrels that are just fast, and sometimes you get them that are slow. What causes that? Uh, other than actually bore groove dimensions, you know, how much you, you squeeze that bullet down, that's basically So it's a tenth difference. So it's to. plus or minus a tenth, so basically. We, we sit down there, and, you, and, most, and most barrel makers, and we aren't in that thing when we... When we started this company here, the answer was, I don't care what everybody else is doing. Yeah. We're going to go in there. We're going to do the math. We're going to do the physics. We're going to come up with the right thing that becomes dependable, reliable, and accurate. And from a somebody putting together barrels, uh, guns, that they want that on everything they put together. What do you, you know? think the average velocity spread would be plus or minus a tenth? Most of the time, a tenth, and you have to pretty pretty well define that. You're not going to see that until it gets to a certain point. <laughs> so you know, if we're looking if we're looking at 284, and no. let's say we make a barrel that the groove dimension is 284.4. Okay, we already know it's going to be extremely slow because you can't fill the you can't the bullet won't fill the grooves. Yeah. See, so, so you got to be there. On which part? Yeah, whether it's the land or the groove, and then how far you went either way. Yeah. See, okay. and that and that we actually yeah we have what. We have a, a, a algorithm that we, we came up with that basically is what we call elongation. And that really comes down to when you stuff the bullet in the barrel, how much does it grow? Because it does grow mm-hmm. in length because we squish it down. Yeah, it's if no you squeeze than, it, it has to get longer. It, it, it has to get longer. We, we like our, our, our uh, barrels to give with most of the bullets that they're really meant to, to use with, they're going to have about between 1.4 and 1.6% elongation. Wow. And so, so you make the groove size so it elongates it that much then? Yes, correct. How, okay. That's how we do that, yeah. How fast does that happen? The what? The, the, the elongation? The stretch? The elong- yeah. Immediately as it squeezes. Is it bam? It is. Oh. It is literally when the, when, the, when the gun goes off first, you know, we, we look at that, we have this huge pile of pressure till the bullet starts to engrave, which is not, you know, obviously with jacketed bullets, you're not going to have them engraved like you would a 22 long rifle. So there might be some bullet jump. There might not be any bullet jump. They've been, you know, guns have been successfully inaccurate both ways, right? Mm-hmm. But as soon as it starts to make it in there, and it's probably in the bearing surface 50% is the highest pressure peak you have. That's where you're going to see that 62 or 63 or 65,000 PSI mm-hmm. on that. So at that point there, now we're, we're actually, the bullet is shorter. Hmm. Okay. Once it gets back in there, the bullet will be longer because it's still not totally in in yeah. the in the rifling. Keeping in mind that all of this is happening in about three milliseconds. Mm-hmm. So what happens as soon as it leaves? Does it change shape again as soon as it exits the muzzle? They can matter on bullet construction. They can actually do that. And we've had some high high speed photography where it shows them actually buckling. So that's why that you can't rely on a a book BC 
the BC needs to be what shut out of your barrel because your barrel is going to reshape the bullet differently than since each barrel mm-hmm. is different. But back yeah. to that um, on fast versus slow. So like when, when chambering a barrel, let's say we'll take a seven mm. It I may grab a bushing to try to find the right bushing for the reamer, mm-hmm. and it might be two seven seven two on one of them. Another one might be point two seven seven eight. So there's you know six tenths difference in the diameter there and so generally you're saying that now now that's on the the off the lands mm-hmm. the idea of the lands out yeah is that going to affect how fast the barrel is or is that- it it can to a certain extent and it matters you know another thing when you're looking at what you're looking for you're not necessarily going all the way through the barrel it's not uncommon yeah. for the back the lands in the back of the to barrel be bigger, to yeah, bigger and smaller yeah. just just to be a little bit bigger, it's, you, you know, that does Generally, what would you say if you got a fast barrel, it's just a little bit tighter in the right spot and a slow barrel's looser in the wrong spot or? Uh, pretty much that, except for, you know, the yeah, slow barrel's probably going to be a little bit loose from one end to the other end. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's mm-hmm. going to take that because, you know, we still have that chance for all the powder to really do its deal after the bullet's in there. What we don't want it is to make it easier for it to go down the bore. Okay. You mm-hmm. see, if you do that. Obviously, the power, the the powder's lost a lot of. Then, and a faster barrel is going to be tighter. Almost always, I haven't seen where it hasn't been, okay. or in the the displacement of the bullet. I mean, there's a couple ways to make that faster. I mean, we could you could sit down there and say, okay, we want to make a little bit faster barrels. Well, we'll have more land, uh, higher ratio of lands to grooves, and automatically. The bullet's getting pinched, you increase the pressure. That's one of the ways that the 5R system works, is that that's one of the things they do to get the grip you need for the way that the rifling is. Uh, They have to make them tighter. You know, a lot of times 5R rifles shoot a little bit faster, Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons for it is because if they don't, it won't grip the bullet. It's just uh, that's one of the downsides to that thing. But, you know, knowing that that the 5R rifling was originated in Russia, that's where that come from, and they did that on their military guns. They were also looking at it to a certain extent. They used it for their Palma guns for the U.S. Olympic teams because they were hard to measure, and they were making them smaller. And you get more speed out of that 155 Palma bullet in a 308. Believe me, hmm. you can have them things roaring out of there. Uh, uh, the new Palma barrels are 306. I think 306.5 is what you can have in the in the groove and two uh, 298 in the bore. Wow! I think is legal. Wow! Oh baby, <laughs> that's tight. That's yeah, about 250 feet a second out of that bullet. But then again, them guys aren't reloading them cases either. Mm. <laughs> They're not any good after that mm-hmm. first round. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like Jake's 300 Ultra. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, it's a one of a kind. Uh, we we started chatting out in front of the shop a few weeks back, and you brought up. We started talking about metallurgy and good steel versus bad steel, and you brought up an interesting fact about, I think it was Hiroshima. Hiroshima, and then certain guns, they had to find old guns to build the new guns. You actually had to find good steel from old guns to smelt back down to make good steel now. Just walk us through a little bit about what you were talking about. Well, you know, know, metallurgy in in its its rarest and raw form, okay, Uh, if we go back to that, we still use <clears throat> the Bessemer process to make steel. Okay, the Bessemer. Yeah, so that's back to when Carnegie owned Carnegie Steel. This goes back in the 1880s. Yeah, we, no, we don't know him. We, we don't. We know. Do you, you know remember? What? I was going to say I was never that's back in the Jesus days. To one of his parties. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> I wanted to go to his house. He just wouldn't have yeah. nothing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it literally goes back that far. And the way things are done today, there's some companies that do it different, but most of the steel in the United States is still built that same way. Mm. In an open pot with a blast furnace, and they blow all the carbon out. Now we add the extra stuff that we want back in there, get rid of all the stuff you don't want that makes it iron, and they bring the stuff in that makes it steel. You know, and you, we run into this problem. It's a consistent, a consistent fight for us in the barrel, in our shop, of making sure that the steel is good from one end to the other end. That's consistent from one end to the other end. You also talked about where the steel was smelted could take in particles right. from the environment. They do, and it still does that way today. There, for for years, and it's still it's still produced. There's two different kinds of mild steel that you use in the automotive industry. One is called rimmed, and one is called killed. It has to do with the bricks that are in the lining of the blast furnace. Will okay. actually change the mechanical properties of the steel. Really? Yes. It's 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 crazy that you can get that, and that one is more malleable, so they use that uh, to make fenders and stuff because it bends easy. The other one's a little bit stiffer when it's bent and fatigued, so they build frames out of that. You know, mm. so you know they found this out years and years ago. I mean, it's 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 quite surprising, and you know, I don't know how much that process is left because I'm not in the automotive industry, so yeah. I wouldn't know. But that's where it started, and then when we started looking for steel, there's only real two companies that we're really looking at dealing with, and basically one is Swiss Swiss Steel Ugetech, which is where it comes in. They melt that in northern France. The reason we like that is because it's, I don't know. Five, six, seven years ago, they basically mothballed it. Something happened, and then Swiss Steel bought the place back out, and they made it a modern factory. So it's only a five-year-old factory. Uh -huh. So they have all the new stuff. They have ways. They sit down there, and they run nitrogen over their blast furnaces and stuff so it won't absorb garbage out of the air, all of those kinds of things. They run everything through a vacuum. They use... A spectrometer to figure out what the, what the material is before they pour the ingots all of this kind of thing and so they, they do a pretty good job but we still even with their stock we still have places you have hard spots and soft spots in the steel you just we end up dealing with that you know and there's not much we get to do but uh, live with that and it doesn't matter there the other one is North American stainless we're looking at we're get, getting into those guys there they use uh, the new process as well a lot of their stuff is old steel they re they remelt old steel mm -hmm. and uh make it into what you could use for you know for rifle barrels mm -hmm. and uh, at the same time newer product new newer process you don't have to worry about it you know well we built your steel and it was 98 degrees outside and 115 degrees humidity and god knows what else fell into the pot you know and it, so you know you can have differences and uh, there's a it happens, and there's barrel companies out there that have literally went out of business because they got bad steel. Mm. You know, yeah. You know, so it's really tough. So we we are very particular on what we get. We're very particular on what we use. Anything in there, there'll be times you'll be drilling if it's soft uh, in one spot, hard in another spot, and a lot of people think, okay, well the whole bar is. Well, no, it's actually spots in the bar that are hard and soft. It isn't just all the way around. So you can actually, with the style of cutting that we use, and this, and uh, sometimes you catch this in drilling, it's just too far off. Throw it out. Are you monitoring the, the drill speed, and that's how you determine hard and soft spots? Or No, no. The only way, with the, the best way we can look at that, the way that we end up finding, you can go in there, and we could look at getting a machine that would do this. All the material's already 
is already x-rayed. It's all sonic pinged, which is supposed to keep it within a certain, it should be within this certain Rockwell hardness, uh-huh. but still Stuff things get by. through. Still sl- things slip by because you know, they're, 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 they're not. And at what point in the process precise. do you detect it? We can detect it in any one of any of the processes. Obviously, the best would be to know it was bad before we started, yeah. but that's not happening. So usually, most of the time, it's found in the drilling process. No. Yeah, you know, if you got a hard spot on one side, it's going to make the the, the drill veer. It's just it's just going to do that. And so if it's too far out, and we don't like that, straight bear out, straight holes are awesome. And uh, that's the best to use, and we just don't like to go too far out. It's mm. you know sometimes we keep those if we're qualifying new cutters for the head or something like that, and we'll go in there and cut it and make sure that our head's right and then throw it in a scrap bag. Actually, we bend them in a U because we've had guys to go down to the, mm. the scrappers mm. there and mm. pick mm. the barrels out of the pile, so now they get them all in a U shape. Nice. So that you know, I don't want anybody using something out there that they're going to get hurt with, even mm-hmm. if they're not supposed to be doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, but anyway, that's one of the places we find it. One of the we'll find it sometimes in lapping. You know, if it's got a soft spot in there, then the hole the hole will ream a little larger, and you go in there to lap it out. The rest of it's lapped out. You got a part that didn't. It's probably soft in there. Mm. So out the door it goes. You can't make a bigger caliber because you still have the bad same bad spot. You you know uh, the next is obviously with the isometric cutting heads that we have. If it's a much softer. If it's more than about one Rockwell, it will start making the groove deeper. Mm. So, you know, one we go in there. Rockwell? That's. Yeah, mm. it's almost nothing. Yeah. So, you really have a hard time holding that. The only really good thing is, is the steel that we, we, that we use. Uh, when we get a Rockwell test on it, not only do we have a surface outside, but we have a middle and we have a center. So, you know, when we go in there, usually the center is the softest part of the barrel. You know, the outside's going to be the hardest because it takes the most of the heat treating. But about one Rockwell, one and a half Rockwell, you can see that. It will show up. And it's just when you go down there and you measure the grooves, it'll just be big in one spot. I have no idea what other people do, but the idea is to build precision barrels. We can't do that. There's no reason for me to take that piece of steel. It is done right there. And it happens. Sometimes you get, you know, steel comes in 24-foot link bars. There's... There's ten barrels, you know, in a, in that in a 28 inch blanks, and you can have all ten of them be bad, mm. or you can have one be bad. You don't really know <laughs> at the end or whatever. It matters in where your steel comes out of the production line. You know, all kinds of things can vary that. But the bottom line is, it's still really whatever we do there doesn't really matter if we go in there and that and the the barrel internal dimensions are not within specification. Mm. It has absolutely no use for me or anybody else. Or I don't think so. I'd, you know, I would assume if we were making 30 caliber machine gun barrels and you had something that was two tenths bigger and one groove for an inch, they're already looking for six inches at 300 yards or seven inches is, a, is the smallest group they want. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> that would be the place you would alleviate that into. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it goes through there. It, even, it, it can even come up that when we uh, machine the outside because... We're really old school on what we do there. We use really sharp cutters, induce absolutely no stress in the barrel, possibly relieve a little bit in there. Um, We've actually had it where you'll be turning it, and you'll see a hard spot on the outside, and you can be down to this size here, down to 700 thousandths, and then a hard spot shows up Hmm. that you didn't catch on the inside and the outside. And the problem with that is it causes the same damn problem. You know, nothing's consistent. 
you know, tough to tune. They will. You can get them to shoot, but sometimes, you know, you yeah, it's just not worth it. It's just pain you know, speaking of that too, there, there's in a those two seven PRCs that uh, Jake and Ryan took to the Night Force ELR Steel Challenge or whatever they called it. Yep. You guys made those barrels. I'm sure same lot of steel, probably one right after the other. Mm-hmm. Yep. I chambered them myself, and I got the chambers so consistent that the brass was interchangeable, which you know is not terribly hard to do. You got to fuss a little. Mm-hmm. Yet even with that, they were in the same guns, painted similarly, same chassis, everything is same as you can be. Yet one gun liked one load and one gun liked another. Mm-hmm. And different powders. Yeah. They, yeah, di- different powders for the same bullet. And yep. so what makes I mean, those barrels were as identical as could possibly be. Yet they wanted different loads. And do you know what goes into that? What what are we not able to capture in this process that'll cause that? Well, you know, every time you look at it regardless of, you know, what kind of cutting cutters you use or anything like that uh you know if you cut let's say one of those barrels was the first the the cutter was brand new sharp and actually in this case here i know that they weren't because the first barrel is usually not as consistent as number two and number three Mm -hmm. on the cutter so those were number two and And number three three. you know still there's a little bit of wear on the tool even though you can make them this everything the same size it's really not totally 100 percent the same surface finish on the inside you know when you get down to the to the level that Everything's going to happen in three microseconds. It's all got to happen exactly the same, and everything has to be perfectly the same when basically they're still, even though they came out of the same bar, they're still two different pieces of steel. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so how, how do we, we control that? We work as hard as we can to control that, but that still doesn't mean it. We've had guys that have had really good results and, you know, being able to chamber up three, four, five barrels, use the same load, you know, the same overall. And then we've had guys that, you know, it's, why we go in there and we look at the numbers and everything there may be a little bit of difference Hmm. but you know at this point here since you're looking at the pressures and they exponentially build will 20 millionths of an inch do the difference Mm -hmm. wow you see what i'm saying so how, how do we control that you know to that to that extent nobody's really been able to do that you know mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if we're looking at button rifle barrels as you know they can vary uh you know even uh, uh brooch barrels which you would think would be pretty consistent and there's companies that use those out there and they are but it still comes down to the steel could be a little bit different yeah it may it may change things a little bit everything could change it mm. yeah it'd be nice to make everything perfectly and exactly the same and you go out and say here's your gun shoot this load in it this long we built 50 of them in a row they all shoot that <laughs> but as you well know that would be a that would be a pipe dream that's actually a pipe dream for a barrel maker yeah <laughs> have everything exactly the same every mm. time that when you get that you know that it's going to be there. We work towards that, mm. but it's a it's it may be an unachievable goal at that level. I don't know. It, it wouldn't be fun if it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, technically, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. It would no longer be fun because you no. you didn't have to work very hard for it. Interesting yeah. part on that gun is his was faster out of the gate, like it, fifty feet, sixty feet per second faster. Mm-hmm. But when we tried to slow it down, it went to hell. But it, when we changed the powder, it actually about the exact same speed they're about identical in group size oh okay okay but at the same powder his one to outrun mine by 50 60 feet per second they actually had a one of the stages at the competition they had a shot marker and it was about a thousand yards it's exactly a thousand it was exactly a thousand yards so you had to fire as a as a team you had to fire both rifles through the shot marker 
at the target, and then the total sum of the group size was how you scored between the two rifles, basically. I think we were one and a half MOA, something like that, but for 10 shots between mm-hmm. the two rifles. That's not bad for a couple of young guys. It yeah. is. Yeah, not bad. Wait, wait till they get some experience, Yeah, yeah shit. That'll be a lot better. We might go from 1.5 to 1.4. 1.4. <laughs> well, the, the reason we're laughing is because the, the, the card just cut out on us there, so we're jumping back in. And I was yeah. just saying how, obviously, after listening to Mark throughout this podcast, you guys understand the 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 hoops that they jump through to only give you the highest quality barrel product for the consumer and that's why we use their barrels um since we started using your barrels not only do the guys love cutting those i know i know blaine you're not cutting much anymore no but they sure dial in but they dial in i mean it just they cut like butter and if any of you gunsmiths want to try a barrel out there just reach out to us and Mm -hmm. uh you can experience the same thing yeah, yeah. And I highly suggest you go watch the YouTube video on their process. Yeah, we did a real nice. It was actually one of the first videos our guy Luke did, uh, yeah. but it was a very nice overview of their facility. Uh, it shows the hand lapping and the and pouring the lead slugs. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, all that good stuff. And I, you know, it was eye opening for me just to see how the barrels. You always you have some idea if you're a mechanical type of guy, you would have some idea about how it's done, but to actually right. see it done in person. Uh, was a, a definitely an experience. So, and, and most of that was captured in that video. So, go check it out. YouTube, shoot to hunt. And we also mm-hmm. need to discuss the fluted barrel pre and after. Yeah. So during yeah. that, we yeah. uh, we had them make two identical barrels. Mm-hmm. We well, what did we do with the two? We fluted one. We, we fluted the living daylights out mm-hmm. of one. I, yeah. you know, you were telling me what's the most radical fluting it was as, diamond. as much as you can cut out yeah. of it. And they, they measured all the boring. Well, diamond diameter. specifically because they rotate one direction mm-hmm. and cut mm-hmm. in one direction. Yeah. Then they yeah. rotate the other yep. direction, cut that mm-hmm. direction. But they uh, did internal measurements before before and after. And after. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I believe we determined it was no more than a single tenth of additional induced runout. Yeah, there wasn't a, wasn't a whole bunch. We kind of expect that, you know. Uh, you should get that out of good quality steel. Yeah, you know, and that's part of that. And that was a Sporter three, yep, which is a seven point seven zero zero muzzle finish. And I think we were just at the twenty six inch length because we have that other one in there now, and it's twenty six. Yeah, and you know. it, that one shot, I think it was a three hundred PRC and shot either two twelves or two fifteens, two point seven five inches at six fifty, just oh. under twenty nine hundred feet per second. Nice. So yeah, it was right in there. Nice. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And now I, I do get a question. A guys will ask. They'll see something we did that's a fluted barrel. We seracoded and I'm like, oh, that looks so nice. My rifle shoots fantastic. Can, should I get it fluted? <laughs> no. And I always tell guy anything that's shooting well, <laughs> no. just leave it alone. You know how many rifles been fucked up by tinkering with them? Uh, yeah, I know no, somebody. I this guy. You know. <laughs> that's yeah, me. I remember that one. That, yeah, that's that's a pretty common thing though. Like you said, uh, here you got this thing that shoots really really good. And now you want to do what? Yeah. You know, the answer is leave it alone. Shoot it out. Well, Wear they always out, start off with another they, one. And they know what their answer is because they say it the same way. I have this right. They'll talk all about the rifle and how well it shoots. And mm-hmm. then at the end of it, they say, but I really like fluting. Should I do it? Yeah. And they already know the fucking answer. <laughs> oh, that goes the same with like plus P and you're like, no, yeah. you're there. Yeah, it's fucking yeah. hammering. The, the hundred feet per second up front. Yes, it's nice. Add it up front. But if you're already hammering... The difference between twenty nine hundred and three thousand, the elk don't give a shit. 
No. Yeah, they actually, I had never seen anybody in physics class. There was no elk in physics class at (laughs) all. So they really don't care what's going on there. And uh, they're more interested in not getting shot than getting shot, I would assume. You know, and it matters. There's a lot of guys out there educating by missing them, too, by the way. That's the. That, but you know, I've that, never a, seen an elk in physics. Yeah, Oof, never had one. Well. You know, they just they just know they're there, and the next minute, they're not. If you do your job, I never so. thought I'd meet a guy that that would walk in somewhere. So imagine this, Mark, that you you bring a bunch of goats with you, you pack a bunch of shit in, you walk in seven miles. Just and he describes it as this hellhole. You know, he's got this once in it. The worst place I've probably ever hunted. He gets. It took him eight years to get the tag. He walks all the way in there, and there's this assortment of enormous bull elk that he can shoot. And he spends four or five days there in negative sub-zero temperatures, mm-hmm. and decides not to shoot one of those because he could potentially get one that was twenty inches bigger. That's this guy right here. Mm. Yeah. So now, so I'm going back to the hellhole. Yeah. Oh, so you're going back? Well, you yeah. know, from from a from an age standpoint, the best <laughs> is when there's a cut bank and the elk's above it, and your pickup truck's right below. Hey, shoot the bastard. Rolls down and right falls in, in the truck. Yeah. That's the best, but it doesn't yeah. sound like that's going to work for you. No. So you know, if you're starting to hate that a little bit, you are getting a little bit of age on you. There you now. go. You're getting oh, a little bit of that smart. Definitely. There. Like I am dreading. It's not the walk in. It's just seven miles walk out uphill. Is what I'm dreading. Oh. Then you put an elk in the mix, or two elk, because there's two of us. Ooh, it's going to be rough. Need That'd a be... helicopter. Yeah. No, just need the private land guy to let us cut through, but he ain't about that life. Hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, if you're going to get it, I guess it's the hard way. We got questions. I don't know. We, we keep going. Anything else? Are you good? Dial them in. Yeah, because we're already way over an hour, and I know Mark's got to get back to that 338 barrel and that barrel for Blaine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, no. The now two it's two. Barrels now it's two. Blaine, yeah. Yep. All right. Let me go back in here. I'll just take and up. set that on Nathan's desk and say, do this. Yeah. Nice. That works for me. It's nice to have a guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. It is. Put that in the schedule now. <laughs> oh, God. There's a lot more questions now. Go ahead. Just rip them off. Oh, hey, it's in the threads. I don't have them like written down because uh, I kept going. Let's see. Good lord! It says, and this has already been this has already been answered. When will six millimeter and two two four barrels be available to purchase on at UM or Ace? They're available, correct? Twenty two has yep. always been available. Twenty two has been available yep. since we've even talked to you guys. It's yep. just not, you know, and it's starting to show up a little bit because, like I said, the twenty two Hark, and we're yeah, starting to help. a little bit of that. And and twenty uh, six mil is on the shelves right now. Yep. And when we already discussed this, but we'll bring it up again. Will you ever make a twenty five cal barrel? Yep. Yeah, that is going to be next. Actually, we were, you know, a lot of the tooling, some of the tooling takes a while to, that we can't build and insert in-house. Mm-hmm. takes a while to get. Probably it. middle so of next year, enough. feasibly. Middle yeah, of next year. It's, it's going to be probably somewhere around the middle of yep. next year. I, I'm sure that it'll be out in, the, I'm thinking, in the May. But, you know, technically, we're already gathering most of the stuff now, mm-hmm. you know, to, to uh, be able to drill the holes and. Nice. The big one is getting all of that. The gun drills are actually very easy to come by. Reamers are tough to get good ones. Start to finish, start to finish, total touch time to manufacture a barrel with a contour. 
total touch time start okay, to finish. That, that does vary a little bit by what it is. Average it. Yeah, if we're if we're sitting down there, we're looking at about three hours. Three hours to construct a steel barrel from a bare rod all the way into a shootable barrel. What is taking these fucking manufacturers fifteen months to fill a fucking barrel order? What 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 could possibly in business Good in a business mindset? Question. Good question. What could possibly take you fucking fifteen months? Are they waiting on steel? Like, what, I don't know if they're on? waiting if they're waiting on steel or they just have that many orders. You know, you look at a lot of these, and I don't know the recent numbers, but mm-hmm. you know, if we go back five or six, maybe seven years, uh, Krager only put out seven thousand barrels a year. So, as a businessman, you know, like twenty some people, as a businessman owning a barrel manufacturing facility, at what point, if you know that, we're, what do we say you're making a hundred a month? Mm-hmm. So, at what point, how many months of orders would you have to see? How many months back order would you need to see before you decided to increase your capacity? I I don't like the idea of being any more than six to eight weeks out. Okay, so we hit we hit eight I'm weeks of orders, to, yeah, and then it moves to twelve, and then you're really crunching. You guys are running full speed. It moves to sixteen. At what point do you oh, increase no, capacity? No, no. We we would already increase capacity if we if we're looking at it we are actually i actively watch for people who would be somebody who would have the temperament and the mindset to be able to do the work in there Mm -hmm. you know and uh they they become they become harder to find because well frankly it's a very it's somewhat demanding job Mm -hmm. you don't you don't have them on a lot of room yeah you know to you don't get to make mistakes they got to understand that if there is a mistake and they made it it's like hey i made a mistake and go okay what'd you do and we figure out what you did and move on from there mm-hmm. and so we don't get anything out the door that's bad exactly. or potentially dangerous for yeah. god's sakes i mean you know you can even have that so you know i always look at that safety thing as uh, practically utmost of all things when we make barrels but if we when we get to if we got to i would say 10 weeks we yeah. would be seriously looking for somebody by then if we these, don't already have i don't somebody. know what these other guys are doing and then and then we're starting to learn about the stock manufacturing process now and the actual cost of things, mm-hmm. and it's boggling our fucking minds. Until you physically pursue your own stock design to be made by an existing manufacturer, you don't understand what goes into it. And, and our eyes, not only through you about barrels, but also through stockies about stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's pretty eye opening. Like why this industry deals with the extended lean times and ever increasing pricing coming out of nowhere it's, it's, i think it just carries over from the ammo shortages they they think they can do it so they just continue to it's, do it it's the industry as a whole yeah i think yeah. That they're all we can say this because this is all backed up so we can just jump onto that pile and say we're backed up because you know barrels are hard to get and metals hard to get yeah i think that they they don't actually have that problem but they lean on that problem hard they're just making shit up was mm-hmm. it was it you and i blaine that were just talking you talked about that you have been buying stocks from mcmillan for 30 years and they yeah. have always carried a six month lead yeah time four to six minimum. month lead time like, mm-hmm. why yeah, I, I guess they wanted to have a good order file in case things slowed down. But well, that's always a lovely thing to have in manufacturing is sit down there because, you know, we're now getting back after, what, eight or nine years of everything wide open, mm-hmm. you know, no lull in the in like June, July and August or whatever. Yeah. And then this year here we had there was a slowdown in that. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So, you know, having that three-month backlog makes it so you... you the only thing that feels that. that it's still short from COVID is primers. Yeah. Primers in general are still the thing that has simply not made a comeback. And some powders, too. Yeah. S- yeah. Side note, you said that 
correct me if I'm wrong, that primers are also regulated by SAMI? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're uh, all regulated. Yeah. Well, there's there's some regulation. They have they have a certain amount of bristolence that the primer should have, you know, to to make it in there. But when it really comes down to it, regardless of of uh, uh, who's making them for them or if they're making them themselves, they all have a different recipe. I can't tell you how many different uh, formulations they have for primer mm. material. It must be. I know if you look at what Federal's done, I think they've had seventy or eighty of them over the last. 50 years mm-hmm. <laughs> they change things that matters on what you can what you can't get what you're going to use it for mm-hmm. you know and they all do that i mean you, when people sit down there and look at primers being all the same the answer is there isn't one large rifle primer that has the same brins- bristolence numbers or how powerful it is mm-hmm. not one of them mm. you know and it definitely doesn't help the situation with hornady hornady was producing their own primers i don't know what the situation is now but their place just blew up yeah, they well, had they had help. that. They had a death there. It was kind of a yeah. it's, it's a big thing. They actually had that plant, and they mothballed it for like three years, and they brought it back out here really? recently. Um, from what I understand, is the the primer production they were using it was about fifteen percent of the primers they use. Mm-hmm. So you know it's probably going to slow certain things down because fifteen percent is going to show up. Oh, a lot of them. You know, it's going to show up. Definitely. But it shouldn't. You know, from a standpoint of getting ammunition out and stuff, it shouldn't. It's it's not going to be crippling to the industry. It shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But it's still a bad thing. And primers are just nasty stuff. Well, the it's two nasty. big ones are Federal and CCI that was owned by Vista Outdoor, and Vista Outdoor just sold all of that to a foreign. A foreign guy out of Cro- I believe Croatia. Yes. So he's out of. I don't know if they got an improvement improved approved. Uh, loan you don't know the that government. it's approved yet. I don't know. Okay. It's been God, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of checks and balances. Oh, in yeah. I swear though, it seems that ever since and, and shortly before we haven't seen. Of course, Midway just got some and whatnot, but there hasn't been really any delivery of federal or CCI primers through the wholesale loop. Right. In very many, little. many many months. Very very little. There's a lot of them. And then all of a sudden, you heard that they were selling out. So yeah, I, I'm I'm not quite sure why they did. I I, I kind of do because you know that again, federal was not owned. Federal just didn't own federal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was owned by somebody else, and they're getting they want. I think they want to dump it, but I don't know why. Yeah, I you know one of the major maker. things. Well, it's crazy. You think about it now. What's Maybe liability and regulations, and it could have been a number of things. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to say. You know mm-hmm. wh- what it's what it's all about, but you know with what's going on now. And when you look at the Ukraine and you you look at what's happening over there in Israel right now, will the DOD say, gee, we're going to sell uh, uh, ammunition manufacturing to an outside entity? Mm-hmm. I, I got a feeling they might not make it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially if those are the only I, primers we're I making agree. in the States. Yeah. yeah. Okay, back on the questions. This is for UMN Ace. Approximately, when will prefits be available? Will the 223 prefits teak of when will there be 223 prefits tikas? Of course, we could make them now, and Ace is going to be making them soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is now again. This is November seventh, twenty twenty-three. This is Blaine's here. This is a good one too for Blaine and Mark. Is there any value in clocking a barrel pointed up, i.e. the max run out at 12 o'clock when oh, installed? Sh- that wasn't yeah. a good question. Oh, <clears throat> I yeah. typically do just because there's a couple different ways to chamber a barrel. You know, you chamber through the headstock and you dial the throat in the breech or the, you know, the bat machine way, the, the Bruce way, where you hold the muzzle. You, you know, you, you cut the muzzle first, get that straight, and then drill and pre-bore. 
Um, I don't know how much difference it makes because when you talk about clocking, there's two factors. There's a straightness of the hole drilled through it, and then any um, uh, of the barrel bending a little bit or, or, or warping or twisting. And I know you can talk about that, about how the... I know this, for, for a long time I thought that when I was clocking them up, I was really clocking them down and vice versa because I thought the barrel was bent, and Mark said, no, they're not bent, it's the straightness of the hole. And so uh, I was clocking them opposite. It doesn't seem to matter. All the ones I've done have shot really well. I, I guess the theory is that if it's up or down, as the load increases, it's going to go higher and lower, but it's going to do that anyway. So I guess I got a big, I, I don't know. Some guys do, some guys don't. Basically, it doesn't matter. I don't know if it matters or not. I, what do you, what's your view on that? You know, it, it would, in, in the case, if we were looking at something that the, the hole that was in there was actually that crooked, it would show up there. You know, and that does happen from time to time. I've seen that myself, chambered barrels for years. And if you got a really crooked one, and I mean, you would be able to blame anybody who would look down there and say, oh, shit, that barrel's crooked. If you can't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel, yeah, and then actually, there's a fucking problem. Definitely there. You look there, and you only see half of a round circle at the other end. Let me tell you, yeah. it's it's bent. But, uh, you know, or it's, that's what drilled it was. Drilled crooked. Drilled crooked. It could even be drilled crooked. So you would see something there because you would either have a right or a left, you know, that would be noticeable from dead zero on absolutely everything. Yeah. So, you know, sitting down there, and I have to say, I don't know how much it affects when most things are in a position where uh, they're really good. The barrel's really good. Does it? Can it have a little bit of arc to it? It most certainly can. Most of them do, but how much? When we sit down there and we drill a hole at from the breech to the muzzle, basically what we're doing, and you go to the far end and you put a you, you put a gauge pin in the end of there and you put an uh, indicator on it, which we do with absolutely every barrel we drill and ream. You do that with it, and it runs out two thousandths in twenty-eight inches. How crooked can it be? Mm-hmm. That's almost nothing. Yeah, e- even from a standpoint of long-range shooting, it would be hard. But I un- I understand, you know, uh, what Blaine's talking about. And there's other things. And I I know we talked about this. He's not talking about the barrels with two thousandths. He's talking yeah. about the ones with a lot more. If you got that's right, you would have to have a lot more there. You'd have he to have something. He saw half moon down when he stared down the barrel. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna see a difference there because let's face it, it's way out. Mm. You know, but I you know you don't see that in, in really good quality barrels. It doesn't show up very much. Is that I, a, I know this too. Is that, that a gunsmith asket or just a shooter? Just got somebody on the right Yeah, side. I mean, right. it doesn't matter how straight they appear in terms of how they shoot. It it doesn't. Uh, I, mm-hmm. That's know, the I, real answer. That's so, the real so answer, yeah. guys. If, you know, if you have a barrel two thousand run out, five thousand run out, you could that. That's over the whole length of the barrel. That potentially could be less accurate than one with fifty thousandths run out. No, it's well, it could be. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, know. have you seen that? No. Have well, you seen any, anybody um, ever seen that? All I've seen is and, and other major big name gunsmith said the same thing it just doesn't matter how where the barrel shoots it you know we used to get excited because you when you dial it in at the throat and the breech you get that three inches of it perfectly straight or straight within a couple tenths at least and then the muzzle runs out a little bit and uh it doesn't seem to make any difference how much that, that muzzle runs out and part of it could be you go well okay you've bent the barrel a little bit which you could but then mm-hmm. as, you, as you develop your skills you know you're not bending the barrel it's a thick barrel and so that probably has to be the hole isn't drilled quite concentric through the uh, the blank, I guess. 
All I know is when it comes to how they shoot, there is no correlation. Guys would get excited. Wow, this barrel only has, uh, you know, the muzzle run out is only two or three thousandths. It doesn't make any difference if it's that or sixty thousands. In There's, fact, when you did yeah. the the two yeah. barrels for us on the seven PRCs, one had slightly more than the other. And yeah, and I wouldn't tell you. I said, yeah, you wouldn't tell us who was who. And, and, but it and never the matters. Less, and the, the the less fussy barrel had more run out in it. Yeah, mine was pretty simple with two different loads. Yeah, and, and, and yours had more. more whether it was though. the whole, which I guess it was the hole probably wasn't drilled quite as straight as the other one. It, is, it, it can be that. It mostly can be that. I mean, it, like I said, there's it's a different piece of steel, and you mm. can have little things we, that can cause you We dream. literally need to have a question of the week and then just have Mark and Blaine come in every couple of weeks and just bang <laughs> out like 10 of them. It'd be fantastic. Would know. you be up for that? Oh, yeah. I'd be up for <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. You bet. Okay. What else you got? Have you ever seen a barrel go 20K plus rounds without cleaning, maintaining a high <laughs> level of accuracy? 20,000? This is... Well, there there's a guy that could tell you you're wrong. I know him, yeah. but he's got the one fucking barrel in the entire world. Two. He has an AR and a 308. You know, Just, I've seen over the years that you you have a barrel and they'll be out there. Varmint shooters, it was really common, you know, especially 20 years ago. That they the throats were just roasted out of them, and the dang thing still shot. The you know, real I, point is that how many I, guys on the planet are actually shooting twenty thousand rounds through the same barrel? None. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's such a low. We percentage. know one guy. And it what level matter. of accuracy do you want? You know, I always go yeah. to bench rest accuracy, and the answer is not no. It's hell no, and you're an idiot to think otherwise because we've watched groups open up as the barrel fouls. Yep. However. I was ticked off when my bench rest gun shooting 10 shot groups went from a four to a nine. I did it as an experiment and they chewed my ass for doing it during a match because it was a 30 cal. It was a 300 WSM and it shot in the fours up until or thereabouts. I mean, there's always variation, but it shot a nine from round 70 to 80. I went back and cleaned it and it was back to shooting fours again. And so I've actually seen that. Now, if my hunting gun goes from shooting a four inch 10-shot group at 1,000 to a 9-inch. Do I care? Am I even going to notice? No. Mm. no. I, and I, I think that's the, is a level of accuracy. And so practically, and, and the answer I always say is clean your barrel every 50 to 100 rounds. If you really want to go until the accuracy drops off, well, go ahead. But are you going to be out there? You, got, you haven't cleaned the barrel in 300 rounds. you got the bull of a lifetime at 1,100 yards. How confident are you that you're going to be able to hit? I mean, is it going to bu- bug you in the back of mind because you didn't clean your barrel? If it's not, you're probably okay, but it's just one of those things. The cleaning thing is a question on here, but we actually need to go back and listen to our last podcast because he broke down what their cleaning or cleaning method was or wasn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, on the Tikas, as soon as they figured out you guys were doing the Tika thing, it's, it's been on here like seven times. The shank, will it be 1.13? Yes. Yes. Well, I, I thought we yes. were doing 1.17. We're doing we're doing on on the Tika Sporter contour, which is the identical Tika oh, contour. To the factory. Okay. It will be identical. Yeah. Yeah. You know that that's what we, you know, and of course you, we got a couple of, of takeoffs from you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. On the on the Sporter barrel, and we and when we thought about that a lot, and I know we talked a little bit, uh, Blaine, uh, about the one inch 170, you know, versus what it is, which looks fine on them. Yeah, you yeah know, but we the want them is, to be able to take a factory Tika rifle and replace the barrel. Oh, yeah. Replace yeah, the barrel. And, and then the it's going to have to be that way. What yeah. we are going to do, and it's going to be a very small modification, is the 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 half uh, half inch that will be basically be outside the action, which is about all we got to play with, will be parallel. 
it will not affect anything with it going into the barrel. No, no. But it'll make the guy putting it on very happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something's grabbed you know, onto, yeah. You have you have at least something that's firm in the same size. Yeah. That's always the problem when you get into like Tikas and like I said, you know, hammer forge or rotoforged barrels. You know, they basically roll those things out there and they go straight to a polisher and you know, the hundred and eighty or probably a hundred grit or maybe even eighty grit. Mm-hmm. Burn that off of there and then they burn her over there in a hundred and twenty and that baby's heading off to get threads in the chamber in it. Mm-hmm. On those t- like Tika Seiko barrels are Scandinavian barrels, hammer forged, are they getting their own steel from from locally? Is that I would think that they're getting them out of wherever. I mean, you know that uh, there's limited companies that build 416R stainless steel. They're not not everybody does and actually the companies we deal deal with for stainless steel don't build anything but stainless steel mm-hmm. so you know I, I would think that they're using one of one of the foundries over there someplace in uh, europe there's a bunch of uh, of uh steel makers in the northern france germany area and they all do really really good work some is a little harder than others usually in europe their barrels are more off to be 31 32 rockwell mm. we're, we're really looking around here at uh you know a lot of even down to 26 i don't know that's a little bit soft you know our our equipment likes 28 29 it's easier on tools you get a little long, more longevity the 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 tunability of the barrel is a little easier you know you get a you get a 32 rockwell barrel that's 500 at the muzzle believe me you're it, it they can be a pain because of the stiffness it's hard to tune mm. you know mm. so we look at all of those things that's just more like that 28 29 is right where we like to be all right two more ones just telling you something i didn't see a list of bore groove dimensions land configurations and twist rates offered for the various bore sizes on your website that could be helpful to be the same that well, well twist rates are infinite because of cnc correct right yeah twi- twist rates are infinite you know we we can sit down there and i don't know exactly what you want to do but uh, obviously when we build something that isn't what we consider a standard uh, i.e like a 219 bore 218 and a 22 has been pretty standard 219 are very popular with the real long heavy bullets the end of the barrel will be marked that way. Mm-hmm. If there's stuff like that isn't on our website, it's still not on there yet because I have I've been working my uh, my son who does all the all the web internet stuff. You know, like a horse. He's yeah. Well, <laughs> but, well basically, right it's it's six ballard rifling for all that. I think that's yeah, in yeah. our product description. And then mm-hmm. as far as twist rates are concerned, if you want to custom order a barrel, the twist rates are in where we sell the barrels. You're buying it in the twist rate that's displayed mm-hmm. because you're choosing it. Otherwise, it's CNC twist rate. So if you order a custom barrel, it can literally be any twist rate that you want. It can be 7.25. Exactly, yes. or 7.2. So it can and, be you know, We can cut to 100. But, you know, and it, we, that's another thing I'd love to talk about is six millimeter barrels. I think we could spend an hour and a half doing nothing but six millimeter barrels. Mm-hmm. Because when we were doing our stuff there, and, of course, twist rate come up, seven and a half, you know, eight, seven you know, seven's getting to be pretty fast when you look at it from mm-hmm. a, from a percentage standpoint. Yeah, I'm not so sure. And Hornaday puts out like for the for the six, they put out a seven point seven twist for theirs, and I think that's more geared to like the one hundred five, one hundred sevens than the one fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the one the big ones. Yeah, yeah. And we shoot <clears throat> we shoot one hundred threes, one hundred five typically in bench rest, and it's usually an eight because that seems to work. Yeah. And I don't see that being a problem. I think, like I said, I think the reason why Hornaday did the seven point seven is I think you can run the, yeah, the a little bit longer bullets. 
Well, a lot of it when we ran the seven and a halves, and you're you're using the one oh fives, you know, the one oh sevens and stuff. They didn't shoot as well as the bigger bullets. Well, no, all, all those really long. Mm. But you know, you and I talked the other day about this too. That somebody wanted to make an eight point six blackout and wanted a three twist barrel. I think that's standard. Yeah, and then you, I forget what you said. You weren't impressed with the three twist, or? Well, I don't know why they're doing it, and I would only think that they're doing that is to make the powder burn correctly. That's you know, right. It's one of the That's one right. of the big problems is are you getting enough pressure, enough resistance in the barrel? Mm to make the powder burn correctly. And I mm-hmm. think that's one of the reasons why that works because from a stability standpoint, it's not necessary at all. No. Yeah, it they, is a powder thing. It's a minimal amount of powder with a gigantic bullet. Yeah. And they want a super short barrel. So yep. it all comes down to that. Like Faxon yeah. is making, I think, the most 8.6 But you could just make it point. a tighter, <clears throat> tighter groove diameter on it and get the same thing, couldn't you? Slower twist, tighter groove. Yeah, I was actually thinking, and it's all, this is kind of a, uh, we were talking about this here the other day in the lunchroom, uh, was that do you, for the blackout, do you need uh, a bore diameter of 330 to be able to turn that bullet? Do you, do you, you know, because it's really not, you, you're not scorching this thing down the road mm. you know and that's one reason to have a lot of rifling in there is to make sure that it grips well we're not going to have a problem gripping because what things going to make it a grand you know be doing a grand by the time it gets the end of a nine inch barrel mm-hmm. you know should it should the bore diameter be let's say uh uh three four uh three thirty four mm-hmm. you know and have only two thousandths worth of rifling in there but again if the reason for the one and three twist is is for resistance the answer would be what what uh Blaine said would be to start making it 338.0, maybe we make it 337.8 or 7, something like that. Make it a few ten thousandths tighter. The big thing when you do that is it's got to make sure it's going for what it's going for because, you know, somebody said, oh, well, let's work really good on my blackout. I'm going to make a, you know. <laughs> yeah. 338 edge out Yeah, 338 edge or whatever <laughs> and find out that one case is still in there. <laughs> <laughs> still in the gun to this day, you know. Last question. The guy PM me. I'm paraphrasing because he wrote me a book, but basically it's on carbon ring. The catchphrase carbon ring. He goes, you go back 20 years. He said, I don't remember people talking about carbon rings. Is it, is it a thing? Is it a powder thing? People are shooting more. Is it made up? What is a carbon ring to you, Mark? Well, you know, we, we run into some of this, and, and, and especially in the 6 millimeter, because we went to some really slow powders, H1000 and that kind of thing. And, and, and with the high-speed photography, you can actually see grains of powder going out the end of the barrel. You're not even burning it at all. So if you're making it, if it's that dirty, if it's not combusting the powder correctly, uh, you're going to get something like a carbon ring because that's where it's the, the heat is at. And it stops there, and you are going to get a carbon ring. And the reason for it is you got a lot of unburned powder. You're now seeing some uh, shooting ranges. I've known about three of them here in the United States that actually have chemical fires right out in front of the firing line because there's so much unburnt powder out there. Mm-hmm. And it migrates into the dirt, and it gets into there, and something sets it off, whatever that might be, a spark. It could be from like a, maybe a muzzleloader or a black powder gun. will set it off, and they it's like... Uh, yeah. yeah, water don't put it out. It makes it a hell of a lot worse. You've got to have mm-hmm. basically, you know, a proper, proper chemical fire extinguisher to put the damn thing out. Mm-hmm. Well, why are we getting that now? And I think a lot of times people are looking at the slower powders to get that uh, consistency as far as velocity and everything. But we may not be burning nearly enough of it. Because, you know, I'm sure you've all heard it. 
guys were using the 260 and they were shooting 4350 in there. They were suppressed. They had to watch it because their suppressors would fill full of carbon. Well, the idea behind smokeless powder was not to have that kind of crap out there. It was supposed to be mostly consumed, you know, 97% or maybe even higher consumed. If you run slow enough powders, you may not be consuming at all. So it's going to go someplace. Mm. And you know, so a carbon ring could be, is, is a very real thing. I've seen them in barrels. I've seen some really nasty ones in barrels. How do you get them out of your barrel? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You get, right out. Yeah. Well, you know, anything that you can come up with is a carbon buster product that, that would well, work. I've even best. heard of guys running a reamer back in there by hand uh, to knock the carbon ring off. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have, they're doing it. Yeah. yeah, they are doing it because sometimes that the ring is actually in the throat. Yeah. Sometimes mm. they're right after the throat. Those mm. are the real bears. Mm. I found you know? if you clean them every 50 to 100 rounds and uh, occasionally use IOSO with their hard nylon brushes or thorough cleaning which may be simpler to use. It, th- you just don't have a problem with that. Now, th- the guy shooting 20,000 rounds, I don't know what his carbon ring looks like. I don't know if he has one or, or what, but... He didn't shoot 20,000 rounds. Yeah, well, it's... That, yeah. Is, that is a bunch of ammo. Not him. I'm talking about well, the guy that asked the question. Oh, no, he, he was just saying everything's yeah. a carbon ring problem now. Mm. I don't... Well, yeah. and also, we got borescopes now. We didn't know. 20 years ago... Borsco, I mean, th- that Hawkeye is about the same price 20 years ago as it is now. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first one. Yeah, well, carbon ring is not a ninja. You're going to see it. Yeah. yeah, yeah no, but you have to have a borescope. It's not a, what, a ninja? It's not a ninja. You're going to see it if you look down the fucking hole. <laughs> but, but, but we <laughs> didn't have borescopes readily available. And now you can get a test line for 60 bucks. You can get one of the plugs it. in the bottom of your iPhone. Yeah. And yeah. now the iPhone's got a USB-C. I probably, there's probably more of them available now that it has a C yeah. in it. Yeah. So, yeah. And so you probably, probably had carbon rings forever. We're just now noticing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know we used to run into that a lot in, in the earlier 338 projects that goes quite a ways back. And we were using Canon powders. You know, you could get WC-860, 872, IMAR-5010, you know, which is really rice kernels. I don't know if you ever use that, but they're big. And you would get carbon rings when you were putting them in smaller cartridges, you know, 338s and stuff like that. You would get carbon rings to the point you couldn't load a bullet in there, mm. <laughs> you know. And it's just because the powder's slow and it builds up a car- carbon ring. Well, technically it won't do that on everything. So it's really a deal of, you know, those the slow powders work. But one of the downsides to it, carbon rings. And mm. the answer is cleaning. And the answer is really cleaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Shoot yeah. it out. If yeah. you got some shit in your butt, wipe your butt. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> just drag it on the carpet. Well, we appreciate you very much, Mark, for coming on Man, again. It was fun. And uh, <laughs> as always, wealth of information. We could have went three hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well luckily, there? you're a no, local no. resource. We could have you on again. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. would be great. Anytime you get guys that have questions that they want, we want to come in here and discuss. I have no problem doing that. I'm sure Blaine is right there with it. And... Uh, Perfect. And we can uh, uh, do it whenever whenever it strikes your fancy. I know it's hunting season now. So. Yeah, it's yeah. getting rough. Anything else? <clears throat> Good to go. Good.